This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the National Science Foundation, NSF? How is it modernizing its IT? And what is NSF doing to secure its systems and infrastructure? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer and Chief Data Officer at the National Science Foundation. Dorothy, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Dorothy, I'd like to start off with getting some context before we delve into specific initiatives. Would you tell us more about the history and evolving mission of the National Science Foundation, NSF? Sure. I'm going to uh, try and keep it brief. Uh, we've, been, we've been around since uh, World War II, and uh, we, at that time, Vannevar uh, Bush, uh, was he was an MIT engineer, and he led something called the Office of Scientific Research and Development, and uh, which oversaw most of the wartime research, including things like uh, development of radar and the Manhattan Project. So there was a lot going on in World War II. But when the war came to an end, he argued for the establishment of a um, an ongoing agency to continue to do advanced research in all areas of science. And uh, he wrote a very important uh, report called The Science, The Endless Frontier. And since then, we've been growing. Uh, and actually, the past couple of years have been um, incredible for us. You know, uh, we established just last year the first new office that we've implemented in 30 years. So even though the concept of the endless frontier is uh, still alive and kicking after all these years, uh, we are now going through what what feels like a, a revolutionary growth in the agency. And um, we've established this new, uh, this new office I referred to is called TIP, Technology, Innovation and Partnerships. And it's drawing our, it, it, the purpose is to engage a broader audience in innovation and research more than just, we had primarily been focusing on a university audience um, and and small businesses, but we're really pushing now for uh, implementing science that takes innovation all the way through rapidly through its life cycle to production of benefits, uh, which I don't know, if you guys are familiar with things like the valley of death or what a lot of innovation between the moment where the idea is uh, conceived and the moment where it becomes a product, a lot of ideas rest in that valley uh, for a while before they're picked up. And so TIP is intentional about the, the investments in innovation so that they will help lead directly to results. So, we are still pushing strong and 
it's a very exciting place to be and uh, the second best place to work in mid-sized agencies. So we're all very proud of that. That's a great way to start, Dorothy. So I was wondering, could you tell us more about the information technology and data function within NSF and how does it enable it to meet its mission and how does it work to to support you know NSF achieving its results and, and actually getting that that recognition you just referenced? Well the uh, the National Science Foundation's business processes are fully automated. So the first most important thing for us to conduct business at NSF is to have smooth, reliable day-to-day operations and uh, outstanding customer support, which we really are very, very proud of our service uh, to to our customers. So we're not, you know, the IT organization, the data organization, we're not researchers, we're, we're uh, just IT people, but our community that we're serving is researchers and they're very demanding. So smooth, uh, reliable operations with two other things. One is continuous modernization. So because the IT industry is constantly changing at a very rapid pace, uh, we can't just be, uh, we're like men standing on a log. You know, you can't really stand still. You have to constantly, constantly be moving in order to appear to be standing still. Uh, so that's continuous modernization. And then on top of that, we have we have ongoing innovation. So we have a lab, we have experimentation going on so that we can predict some of the modernization that we're going to have to implement so that we can keep smooth, reliable operations going. That's terrific. So, Dorothy, what about your? I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your duties and responsibilities at NSF. Uh, it's a great question, and I, I, you know, I wish I had more solid footing on this right now. But uh, my job is also in the moment changing. Again, with the growth of the agencies, this is really a tremendous moment for both IT and data. So, uh, in the past several years, five years, I've been both the CIO and the chief data officer. Before that, I was originally just the CIO. Before that, I just ran the DIS organization. So I've gone from running DIS to running IT to running IT and data. And what we're doing now, because of this uh, exponential growth in the agency, we're going to create a whole office that is just dedicated to IT and data. And right now, the agency is working to hire the agency, the, the director of that office. And then I will be moving strictly over to focus on data. So we are, the IT organization is a microcosm of what's happening at the NSF at large, which is we're growing and expanding. So my my objective is to keep all of that going during this period of change. Mm. Do you have a time frame? I was just wondering, is it too soon to mention it when you will make that transition? You know, I really wish I knew. Uh, no one knows. You know, there's so much change going on at the agency right now. Um, you can imagine the HR organization's very busy. Uh, the leadership is very busy. We're all functioning on all all cylinders, however many cylinders your automobile has. That's how many we're functioning on. And so we, we're juggling a lot of priorities. So this change is uh, not sudden. It's a gradual change. We need to uh, be able to manage the change so that the, and so it's going to take as long as it takes. Uh, I think that's a, but you know, we're hurrying, but it's going to take a while. 
Yeah. Uh, I, when I think of your your roles uh, and how they have evolved at NSF, I'm wondering, can you share with us uh, some of the top challenges or management challenges or otherwise that you faced and how have you sought to address those challenges? That's a great question. Thank you. So they all of my challenges fall under managing change, uh, all of them, you know, uh, because there's the rapid innovation that I refer to. So the the field that, that I work in, IT and data, is always changing, period. Uh, the, on top of that, the working style, working from home in a distributed fashion or working remotely is also a level of change in a time of rapid growth of the agency. So there's change upon, there's change in innovation and technology, there's change in the shape of the agency, there's change in the way we work. But the hardest thing for me has been to keep a mirror on myself and identify how I have to change along with all of these other things. Um, ultimately, uh, I don't know if that resonates for you, but if you don't continue to question your own approach to the workplace, to interaction with people, and then continue to change and evolve your own tool yourself, then uh, the other changes are not really possible. Dorothy, I'm wondering, um, what has surprised you most as you're in this influx, as you referred to it as, this influx situation where you're doing all this work and you have these various roles, what has surprised you most in this situation? My surprise has come from the the thinking that there's an end of the line from a professional perspective. And what I mean by that is the evolution of being sort of the head of an IT shop and then the CIO, it doesn't seem like there's a clear career path from that point forward. And and a lot of CIOs feel that way. Like, where do you go from here into private industry and whatnot? And I love serving the federal government. So when the opportunity to learn a whole new um, uh, technology area, which is what data is, uh, arose, I became, I realized I had a hunger for that. So the surprise was, for me was moving up into an administrative role, which is what a CIO is, and then realizing that really the technology is where my heart is, uh, was a surprise. Mm. That's interesting. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your career path, Dorothy. Where'd you get your start and what brought you to your, uh, to NSF? Interesting. I graduated college with a dual interest. One was art. I wanted to be a painter. Um, paint paintings. And the other was business, which I did mostly because I knew I needed to be able to support my art habit. I went into business uh, at DuPont. I started there and a wonderful, huge organization. I started in accounting and I was very bad at accounting. I actually, uh, I, I learned that I'm sort of dyslexic. I switched numbers and things around. I used to get the decimal point in the wrong place. And so that was problematic in accounting. So after about six months, they moved me into computer science, which was a new field at the time. And uh, my career launched, I loved computers. It was just like doing puzzles. So I went from being a programmer to being um I moved to the DC area eventually. I was in banking and then I went into uh, where the most interesting tech was happening, which was in the Department of Defense. I started at DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, 
which also does advanced research like NSF does, but it's focused on the battlefield and the warfighter. And after uh, moving through various careers there, including heading up their IT shop, heading up their organization, their their facilities, all kinds of things, I met the uh, CIO at NSF and um, they said, why don't you come work here? <laughs> and I said, okay. Uh, and so I came over to NSF first as a detailee, and I was a detailee for a couple of years, and then I uh, it, then I moved into the IT roles and up the chain. Um, I became the CIO. Actually, I have I'm not an ambitious person. I I as you can tell, I'm sort of roaming around. Right. I was the head of the IT shop, which I love doing. I'm uh, and the the CIO at the time, Amy Northcutt, died suddenly. We were peers. Our kids were in school together. And um, that's how I got the role of CIO. And I got the role of CDO when the role became required at the agency. The uh, director appointed me in that role. So I didn't know anything about data at that time. And um, that's taken me to where I am today. That's wonderful. And I'm wondering, given your background and, and your journey, uh, what to you? What, what makes one an effective leader? Are there specific characteristics of an effective leader? And, and perhaps you could share with us uh, some leadership principles you you follow. Sure, I believe that the most important thing is um, listening and the ability to develop empathy for the people that you're working uh, with, um, and so that leadership in the technical area is a little bit complicated by the fact that the technology staff that support you tend to be on the introverted side, which is okay. I'm introverted as well. So you have to dig in a little bit more to get to their motivations. But I really believe that it's just about uh, serving their objective. So everyone comes to the office for a different reason. And the leader's job is to figure out what that reason is and to inspire them. What is the IT strategy for the National Science Foundation, NSF? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer and Chief Data Officer at the National Science Foundation. So I want to transition now in this segment 
uh, Dorothy, to to understand some strategies that are going on at NSF. And in particular, I was hoping you could tell us more about the IT, information technology, and the data strategies that, at least for now, are sort of guiding NSF. And, and really, you, maybe you can distillate them through the key priorities in these areas. Sure. The IT strategy and the data strategy are very different animals. The reason for this is that the IT strategy takes you forward several years, five years, from the perspective of a mature practice. So the IT strategy builds on the technology foundation, enterprise architecture. So think of it in terms of talking about um, improvements to the tools and practices of the technology uh, family, whereas the data strategy talks about creating a foundational capability, a new world. So the data doesn't talk as much about the technology as it talks about the, it does talk mention data and tools, but it also focuses strongly on governance and culture and building the the workforce and the uh, learning path, the career paths, the learning paths for the community that uses data and everyone uses data. So it's focused more uh, on the entire data community, whereas the IT strategy focuses on technology, uh, moving to the cloud, securing the infrastructure, uh, those kinds of things. That's terrific. Do you feel comfortable talking about priorities in these two areas for the for the foreseeable future? Uh, sure. The I believe the IT uh, strategy is based on a couple of things. One one is um, moving to a zero trust architecture through all of the facets of technology. T- technology includes, you know, the network, the data foundations, the business applications. So Zero Trust says it takes all of the um, responsibility for ensuring security out to the endpoint. That means to the the user identify once the user identifies themselves, the systems, the network and the app business applications and the databases know what that person uh, may and may may not do, and it, it funnels them directly into uh, the things that they're allowed to do. Um, and the reason that's important is because we do not typically build our networks in segments that uh, we're, we haven't historically built our networks in segments that segregate people and provide security at the network level, but we also haven't built our applications that way, nor our databases. And so things have to be secure throughout. And that's got had a big impact, I believe, on the IT strategy. The data strategy challenges are that we have to take our data infrastructure from its primitive state to a found a strong foundational capability. So you know, Dorothy, IT modernization has been a key priority for some time within federal agencies. And I'd like to explore 
efforts at NSF at modernizing infrastructure and systems. And could you tell us about the cloud migration uh, that's happening or has happened at NSF and how has it increased resiliency of IT services and applications, improved speed of deployment and support the overall effort of recovery capability at NSF? So the cloud has had a magical impact on all of us, whether we feel it every day or not, in that it has liberated the IT community from having to manage hardware. So it's it's changed our lives for sure and configure hardware and but but it's also allowed us to scale up instantly. And so as we modernize our our technologies, we no longer have a heavy legacy investment in a bunch of equipment that no longer suits our purposes. So it allows us to adapt new capabilities so much more quickly that we don't even think about it. I mean, there was a time maybe you, you might remember when software upgrades you would be notified of software changes ahead of time. And you might even be trained in what those changes were going to entail. And then, you know, you'd get this update. It was a big deal. And now we get updates on our phones, et cetera, every day it could happen, or we don't even know how often these updates are happening. So we're, we've moved from a, a place where modernization or innovation used to happen in steps, in big steps, and now it happens continuously. And that's true at NSF. We have some monthly releases of large changes, but we have continuous releases of security improvements and uh, desktop applications will change overnight. So all of that evergreen infrastructure um, and capability is brand new for for the workforce. Um, With respect to innovation, we also, had the ability to implement new technologies quickly because of the low-code, no-code solutions being available, which means, you know, in a low-code solution, you buy the infrastructure and the application and the interface all at once, as opposed to having to code all of those things. Um, And if you think about these tools like, you know, uh, Salesforce or ServiceNow, you get three quarters of the application comes to you already completed, and that's a big savings in time to deployment. Dorothy, when you think of the cloud journey at NSF, I'm wondering, were there any specific challenges or obstacles that you that you faced during this time? And are there any lessons learned or insights you want to share about how you address those challenges? Well, you know, um, we don't think about cloud now as a new thing, but certainly when it first was under discussion, there was, it's almost funny, there were so many concerns. You know, we used to have something at NSF called floor servers, F-L-O-O-R, and the floor servers were named after the floors, and the people sat on the floors with their floor, floor servers in closets, and they were afraid that the data, that their data would move from the floor closet uh, not only it, when we moved the floor closets into the computer room, they didn't know it. But when we moved the floor closets to the cloud, that was when people got scared. 
they felt nervous. And the IT community, the people who were used to configuring those servers and maintaining them and watching the, you know, watching to ensure that they didn't uh, crash in the night, those people were also very concerned about losing their jobs. But what happens is the job changes. But now, so certainly we've conquered all of those concerns about the cloud now. And I think that the only thing people, you know, want to keep close to them are things that they need to have close to them. So there remains a, a network in the building, you know, a physical network, but, and we are still and probably will always be migrating things up to the cloud and down from the cloud, depending on the purpose. Uh, but, you know, the cloud has become a, a, a natural way of life for us. I was wondering, what is being done, Dorothy, to further enhance IT governance across the enterprise? How have you focused on IT governance? So the governance at NSF right now is what I would call highly inclusive and democratized. There's a problem with that, though, which is that and we did that because NSF people asked for it. You know, eight years ago, they said, we want to know what's going on in IT. We want to participate in what's going on. And truly what has happened is the management has not, has had less and less time to participate, but the customers, the end users are still very engaged. So what has happened is, you know, we've migrated from one or two management level groups that were inclusive of all program offices and administrative offices in the agency were represented to, you know, 10 different interest groups that are doing different parts of the IT, but at a much more detailed level. So, you know, there'll be an HR group and a a financial group and a data group, uh, a group that focuses only on innovation. So we have all of those. The problem with it is that as the agency grows, we need those people who know what's going on to remain available to perform their primary functions. And democratized IT is a volunteer function for the most part. We need them to do their main jobs. And, uh, you know, we need everybody to be doing twice as much work. And, and uh, you know, so it's all hands on deck. So we're trying to we're trying to work through that change. And that's a big part of this new office coming into place. So, you, so when that happens, you'll see the evolution uh, of of how IT governance is done at NSF, which is interesting. You know, it gets to the other point that I wanted to uh, go to, and that is around customer experience and what you've done, what you think the agency has done in the area, whether it's internal, uh, internal customers, if you will, or those who are, you know, looking for grants or services from NSF. How are you focusing or enhancing customer experience? The customer experience, we have something called CXUX, customer experience, user experience, uh, has become a science of its own. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we established a group called the CXUX team, and they've done a good job, really a wonderful job at helping us uh, create systems that are easier to use, you know, primarily internal, but but also external. You know, we've moved from Fastlane, which is our traditional proposal processing, to something called research.gov, which is much easier to use and does a lot more work for the user than Fastlane did. 
from an external perspective, I think the most we can do, the best thing we can do as a federal government, and this takes it up to the next, I think, higher level, which is that we need to make it easier for all customers, all taxpayers, you know, and all citizens, let's say, to access federal services without having to know so much about how the federal government works. So we need to move to single login for federal services, to, you know, simplified capabilities so that the customer can come to a portal and reach all of our services. Now, that's happening at a federal level in various ways, you know, federation of login.gov, for example. At NSF, we are working at a more specific level of, you know, integrating our systems to the greatest extent possible with the external systems that are doing similar things. We have been collaborating with NIH for a while on some of our capabilities. And I think the more we work together as a community of agencies, the simpler our customers' experience will be. NSF has a very wide range of customers. Uh, So uh, we have recently launched a new website, which we hope will be uh, a great simplification of our language and our interface so that people can find things regardless of which field of science they're looking. And um, so we continue to press hard on those things. What is NSF doing around digital transformation and cybersecurity? We'll explore these topics and more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer and Chief Data Officer at the National Science Foundation. You know, in the, in the previous segment, Dorothy, I talked about IT modernization and move to the cloud. Uh, and to start out the, this segment, I'd like to talk about um, what I call what's been called digital transformation. And where I'm going with this is I was hoping you could sort of give us insight into any expanded uh, development, implementation, or use of advanced technologies, um, artificial intelligence, AI, maybe not so advanced, but robotic process automation, advanced analytics, uh, tools like that. How are you leveraging them at NSF? Strategically, the RPA, uh, we've adopted RPA. It started actually in the um, finance area. The 
um, financial organization, I should say, uh, in that they had some routine, this is several years ago, they had some routine functions that uh, were where people were taking information from one system and rekeying it into another system. So we adopted RPA over there very early on. And we have continued to grow our community of practice with our with robotic process automation, RPA. Um, and so that has been very useful in uh, in in a lot of ways. One, it has shown us that it, it moves us in this direction of distributed uh, innovation or local, what I call local innovation. And it's really getting the tools for developing simple solutions into the hands of the end users who have the problems that they need to solve. So uh, what RPA has been doing for us is tying together steps where, for example, if a person is invited to uh, participate in a panel and has entered into sort of a panel system at NSF, but then they need to receive an email, we have established uh, bots, you know, uh, they're called automations that, that, that help tie those simple steps of business processes together. Uh, so RPA is uh, healthy at NSF and it's it's also become very important for the at the programming level. So where we have systems that have evolved separately, they can be tied together with uh, with RPA. And also now then that also moves you into AI. So you know robotics processes like uh, are, the very most fundamental type of of artificial intelligence. They're not, you know, they're they're not Chat GPT. They're not complicated, and you know, but they but we do cover the spectrum at NSF. So we have we have a group of uh, people, local innovators, who meet uh, every week or every other week and um, demonstrate their tools, the, the the innovations they've created, uh, uh, the data analytics community is using artificial intelligence also in ways that we hadn't anticipated five years ago. They come into the NSF community with programming skills. So again, it's local innovation. It's not managed by the central IT shop, but they are building algorithms in order to derive uh, answers from the raw data that NSF is providing. And um, so we have those, we have labs for that and we're working to improve our business processes all the time. That's great. You, you mentioned Dorothy just now, the data analytics and you, and you did acknowledge that it's local innovation. It's, a, it's sort of applying some of this uh, AI or augmented um, intelligence to glean insights. I was wondering, is there a data strategy for NSF? And if you could tell us a little bit about some of that strategy and maybe highlight any successes in that area. Sure. The data strategy is uh, one of my favorite topics. I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but if you imagine a, pyra a pyramid at the top, there's data and tools. Those are the things customers see. Underneath that, there's policy. You know, how? what is the right way to use data? What is allowed and what is not allowed? And then underneath that is community. Uh, you know, the culture, because the culture has to understand the culture at NSF, the people have to uh, embrace, willingly embrace the policy uh, and the practices that are recommended 
in order to ensure that the quality, that the tools are used to produce quality uh, data analytics. So what we've been doing is working all three of those layers, the data and tools, the policy and the community all at once. So we do things. Last year, we established foundational capabilities in the, um, the data area uh, by putting in place something called an enterprise data inventory, which is a catalog that describes the data. So imagine coming to a new agency that's complicated like NSF and not having any way of really understanding what the automated systems are capturing. You know, that's the old, that's the olden days. That's how it used to be. You know, people would come and they would be required to get reports from the people who wrote the systems. But that's not what data analytics is, uh, has evolved into today. Today, people come in with no knowledge of NSF, no knowledge of the IT, and are trying to derive information from the data that's captured by those complex systems. So the, the strategy attempts to make that data transparent, to make it understood to strangers, to under, to explain to them how they how they're supposed should be using AI, how they should be documenting their products so that their customers understand the results. And also so that and and it's supposed to help them. So we're we are trying to develop a culture that includes training and career opportunities and whatnot that will help them embrace those policies and leverage the data and tools we provide. So Dorothy, would you tell us more about NSF's cybersecurity strategy? What are some of the key threats you're dealing with now and, and how are you building resiliency and redundancy into NSF systems and infrastructure? We need, you know, people used to ask me all the time, how do you sleep at night? you know, being the CIO and having to worry about IT security all the time. And I don't, I don't worry uh, because I think a strong IT security program, we have a great program, but one of the most important things about it is there will be threat and somebody will get in. And so one of the intent, the tenants that I like to talk about is that you need to know what you will do when something goes wrong. Once you know that, once you have practiced uh, an incident a couple of times, and then possibly even experienced one, uh, it, it becomes uh, a native part of your um, DNA, and so you can sleep at night. But once that's aside, then you do have the problem of preventing those those incidents. And uh, it's all a balance of managing risk, which is the worst thing that can happen. Am I, the, am I covered in that area? You know, what is the most serious cyber attack that we might face and how do we defend against that? And NSF has a program that that's, uh, falls into the category of defense in depth, which means that there's many layers of protection for the intruder to come through before they can actually cause damage. And we have detection mechanisms. We have a 24 by seven um, uh uh, operation center, so, they're called SOCs, Security Operation Center, that is always watching these various la layers. So hopefully if it gets through layer one, it doesn't get through layer two. Uh, and so they're working to detect incidents. We also have a very important concept, which is everybody is responsible for security. Every customer needs to be trained in, in, in what 
best practices are. You know, the worst, uh, I'm sure you know this, you know, don't click on an attachment in an email uh, unless it's from a known sender. And even then that you anticipate it coming. So, you know, all of that awareness is a very important uh, uh, part of our program. And part of the success is that people recognize how, how to respond to that. So, Dorothy, as a follow-up, earlier you mentioned Zero Trust, and I was hoping you could elaborate on NSF's Zero Trust journey. Just the one thing that, you know, Zero Trust, when it first came, uh, you know, at least I thought it was a networking change. And I do want to emphasize that Zero Trust really, if you take it to heart, uh, it will end up empowering end users. If you are able to, or when, when, when you are able to build your Zero Trust infrastructure in such a way that uh, it provides protection and uh, knowledge, intelligence about its end users, I, I believe the end users will really become empowered by that, that then we can provide end users tools that give them easy access to the things that they can access, flexible access, so that people can choose their own tool. Just like you can choose your own mapping tool, you should be able to choose your own proposal submission tool. Proposals are the things that NSF collects, the ideas, the way we capture ideas and recommendations. So, you know, I really think that this is a liberating concept and we need to take it to heart. Mm -hmm. That's a great perspective. Um, earlier in our conversation, you did mention hybrid work environments, uh, Dorothy, and I was wondering, what are you doing to support this way of working and ensuring that staff across the agency have the best technology and solutions and devices to actually do what they're supposed to do? Well, the NSF moved from uh, Arlington, Virginia to Alexandria several years before COVID. And during that time, we outfitted everyone with what we called seamless mobile computing so that in the event that the move didn't go well, people would be able to work without uh, outside the building. So even before the uh, introduction really of, of telework or the regular in use of telework, we had we felt we had to outfit people for this kind of flexible work life. And that has served us really well. When COVID came around, people were already used to having these uh, devices, these laptops and mobile devices in order to work. And so we uh, didn't have to change much at that time. We have had to... And actually, even before then, we have had a lot of meetings that were what we call hybrid meetings, where people were, because panels, NSF does things like that we review these proposals, people come from across the nation to review proposals, ideas, and select the best ones. That's how we select the, the most meritorious proposals and fund them. And since that caused, was costly and inconvenient, even again, before before the move to um, Alexandria even, we had set up mechanisms for these hybrid meetings. But what has happened recently is we've had to become expert at the hybrid meetings because in, in the beginning they were um, optional and now every meeting um, needs to have the ability to be hybrid or should. It's, it's, we don't have... Um, 
every, it's not true that every meeting is hybrid, but a, a many of them are, and we've all become very facile with that. So when we, our recent support for the hybrid work has been more focused on the return to work and because we were out of the building for a while, uh, you know, refreshing the the meeting room equipment to best suit this hybrid meeting style. And that's been very productive. That's great. You know, I, I was wondering to do these things, uh, you have to be innovative in some respects. You have to be nimble. And Dorothy, one of the things I, I get from our conversation is your focus on um, cultivating a culture of innovation. I was wondering if you could share with us, how do you go about doing that? How have you gone about doing that in your role at NSF and challenging old ways of doing things while, you know, expanding that risk appetite within your office and amongst your staff and, and colleagues? Are there any lessons you'd like to share with us about sustaining a culture of innovation? Well, uh, you know, I feel a little... I feel like this hasn't been a great strength of mine, but that's only because I'm actually very ambitious. I wish, you know, but, but I think that, I think that, uh, well, for one thing, identifying the, the kinds of people that want to be at the bleeding edge is very important. And so one of the things we've done uh, years and years ago was identify different kinds, different customer personalities. You know, there are pioneers, there are people who, uh, well, there's there's real innovators who just go off into a room by themselves and do something completely new and they don't care about the rules. They don't care about anything. Those guys, they're innovators. And then there's pioneers. Pioneers follow innovators. So an innovator will create something new and a pioneer will say, I wanna go out there, even though it's the wild west, I will go out there in a covered wagon and try this innovation. And then there's the bulk of the community, which, or, or there's early adopters. Those guys wait until the uh, pioneers have settled the West, then they move West, right? But, and then there's the majority of the people who kind of don't move, <laughs> you know, they adopt whatever change is given to them. And then finally, there are laggards, which is the group that I would prefer to be in if possible, <laughs> which is the people that just they find a niche that they like technology wise and they kind of sit in it. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to do that. So, but identifying those groups and serving each of those groups separately is a very important part of cultural change. You know, identifying who's not forcing everyone to move at one pace, but allowing people to move at their own pace is a very important part of this. Um, the hardest thing that I have found honestly is that the connections, drawing the connections between the innovations and the legacy systems. And not legacy doesn't mean old to me, but let's just say the foundational systems, the more stable, mature systems, they require a huge amount of care and feeding because so many people use them every day. The innovations are tend to be used by people less frequently, but they become part of the whole they become part of the infrastructure uh but that's the, that's the role of rpa really you know robotic process automation it's not about recoding the innovation to make it fit into the legacy applications it's about how do we share the data how do we share the information captured by the innovations and mix it in with the legacy data 
That's terrific. So, you know, Dorothy, what are you doing and what have you been doing around workforce development, recruitment, retention, and addressing, if there is any, um, some IT skill gaps, attracting the right people uh, to be, to join you at NSF? Well, we don't really have a huge staff. So, you know, not like we're, we're not a, a, a large enough agency to have real um, hiring shortages per se. I mean, we certainly need a lot more data people. We And we need more IT people, but we don't, people want to come and work at NSF. And so, and they fight for the few positions that we have. So that's all really great. Unfortunately, so keeping people's skills modern is an issue, you know, continuing because once people come to NSF like me, you don't want to go. It's great. It's a great place to be. But we, but, but they do have to accommodate the changes around them. So there's, there's the training aspect. Um, I think that, you know, my focus now, honestly, is on the data side. And we don't, until this new organization is formed, we don't even know how many people we're going to want to have in it or need in it. So a lot of that is unknown. But what we are doing is working really hard to identify with respect to data acumen. Everyone has to have a certain level of data acumen. It's not just for the practicing data experts. You know, you as a user have to understand how to read the output. What does that mean? And how should that be documented so that I can trust it? Uh, so we have been working on, uh, you know, establishing a data science job series uh, at the high end, but also figuring out what what classes does everyone need? What, what kind of training do we all need? Storytelling is a very important part of um, data acumen, being able to tell your story with your data. Uh, so there's a huge amount of time going on now in my organization, focusing on just mapping out the learning path so that we can bring people into the organization quickly, get them up and running using data, um, and provide them whatever skills they need. Some advice for thinking about our career in public service when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer and Chief Data Officer at the National Science Foundation. Dorothy, I was wondering, how are you or have how, have you leveraged partnerships and collaborations to meet uh, your mission at NSF, and how can the private sector help? In the IT world, and I can't talk about partnerships as from the NSF perspective, from the science perspective, although that is a growing uh, area of, um, it's a growth area. 
with respect to IT and data, both, I would be nowhere without the support from the commercial uh, sector. You know, we the tools that I'm talking about, the cloud, all of these things, we buy them. We go to conferences. How do I, how does one learn? How does an executive with a job like a, a CIO ever learn? Take time to learn. You know, reading is great, but mostly we learn from the community around us. That are um, there are communities like ACT IAC that are where commercial entities and feds come together. There's lots of that. It's very important to have that. We learn from the vendors who are selling us things. Uh, and so partnerships, and I think that there's a very important community of people who staff our work. You know, so maybe I don't have to worry about hiring data professionals if I can establish a contract and bring those people on board and bring that knowledge on board. I'm learning from the people that support me all the time. Dorothy, how has the role of chief information officer evolved in the federal government? And given your background and time as CIO at NSF, what are the characteristics of a successful CIO? So the CIO community, when I first came into it, it seemed competitive. It's, so there's something important that we haven't talked about, which is what, you know, what is the role of the of a CFO Act? Now I have to define that quickly. CFO Act um, uh, established a, a group of agencies, most of them large agencies, that came together and had certain uh, executive responsibilities. And uh, one of them at that point required that every agency of these CFO Act agencies have a an official CIO and that that CIO be a member of a group called the CIO Council. And the council is very important because being a CIO is extremely lonely job. When you are a CIO, you're not a technician, you're not really, you're sitting at a table with a a lot of people who have no job skills that overlap with yours. You know, because you have a strong technical background, I'm an administrative person in a science agency. So all of these things make the job of CIO very lonely. But the CIOs, when they get together in the council, they are a group of people who all have the same problems as I do. Uh, so that's where my friend group resides, uh, is actually in the CIO Council. And the CIO Council, I believe over the time I've been a CIO, those partnerships have become very strong. We share knowledge. We share uh, solutions. We share hiring activities. Uh, we, you know, so I would say that the being a CIO has evolved. It used to be the CIOs didn't share as much. They, they were a little bit more competitive and the mission of the CIO was very much focused on their own agency. And that's still true, but you can't get to a federated system. You know, we can't give the best user interface to the customer who is the citizen if our agencies aren't working together. So it's very important that uh, this, to me, a successful CIO is one that focuses on the mission of their agency first, but, but interacts across agencies. Mm, wonderful, wonderful perspective. I was wondering, as we come to the close of the conversation, um, Dorothy, what are the, say, three takeaways, three key takeaways you'd like our listeners to leave this discussion about your agency and the role you do there? Okay, I have thought of three. The first one is uh, that when I was a child, uh, I don't play tennis now, but when I was a child, I went to tennis camp 
and uh, two weeks. I was miserable. But the the thing that, that they teach you is that when you're receiving, someone's serving to you, you should keep your knees bent and be ready for the ball to go in any direction. So I love that analogy. I love the thought of keeping your knees bent at all times. Anticipate the unexpected. Anticipate change because it's things are going to change. So never get too comfortable. That's number one. Uh, number two is embrace lifelong learning. And this was this did not appear to be true when I was a kid. It seemed to me when I was growing up that you could choose a career and stick with it. I don't believe in that. My career has changed at least five times uh, completely. I never would have said 10 years ago, I did not know that data, the, that, that data science was a practice. So it's important to always be open to understanding that you will, the world is changing at a rate that requires us to continue to learn. So that's number two. And the third thing is, Choose to believe in people. Choose to treat everyone like your best friend. And then if they prove that's not the truth, that that's not the case, that you shouldn't trust them, then let that happen. But it, the more the more generous I am with myself, I feel the more I get back from people, even people who might be reluctant to share in the beginning. And in, 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 a, in an organization like the federal government, you're not going to do anything alone. Uh, so I really choose to look at everyone as they're my friend. You know, I, I think you offered some wonderful advice there, and I want to continue on that note before we close. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, uh, you, 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 number one, you have to get joy from giving to others, giving to the nation. You have to, I'm not, I, I was not brought up in an or in a family. I was brought up in the seventies during in sixties, during the time when, when the nation was highly divided about the Vietnam war and there were hippies. And, you know, I, I did not ever think of myself as working for the federal government, but once I found it, I realized that that's where you go. If you want to make an impression, if you want to make a difference, if you want to solve really big problems, you can go to the government, go go into the federal workforce. Um, and you find a sense of nationalism, patriotism. Uh, it, it, it came to me late in life, and now I wouldn't do anything else. Mm. That's terrific. Well, Dorothy, I, I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, more importantly, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. That's very kind. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer and Chief Data Officer at the National Science Foundation, NSF. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government technology and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.